Welcome to Contain This. I'm Dr Stephanie Williams, Australia's Ambassador for Regional Health Security. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of country throughout Australia and our region. We recognise the continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Here at the Global Health Division at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, we launched a new learning series this year. And I'm pleased to bring you the first of two insights from our latest seminar on climate change, health and international development. Today, we'll hear from Professor Catherine Bowen of the University of Melbourne. Catherine is an international expert on the science and policy of sustainability and health issues. She's also the Deputy Director of Melbourne Climate Futures and a Professor of Environment, Climate and Global Health at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. She was a lead author on the health chapter of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Working Group 2, in the sixth assessment report, and has generously shared her knowledge of the drafting of the report during the seminar you're about to hear. Hope you enjoy the episode. So thank you very much for the invitation to speak today. So I'll be bringing the high-level takeaway messages from the IPCC sixth assessment report. So Working Group 2, uh, of which I was the lead author on, which is around impacts, vulnerabilities and adaptation in particular. I'll also obviously talk to um, what we know, especially in our direct region in the Indo-Pacific. I'm a academic. I call myself a practical academic or maybe a practising academic or I'm still practising. So I'm I'm not a traditional academic. I really work directly with policymakers and practitioners to see the sorts of differences we can achieve um, wherever we're working, whether we're working in Australia at a local government level, whether we're working in in Fiji, wherever it might be, whether we're working at a regional or an international level. I'm very much um, in the field a lot of the time and, and really listening and understanding the particular characteristics and challenges that we face. And again, just a note there that most of my work is international um, and this is with a range of bilaterals as well as multilaterals um, and as well as the the big um, global financing mechanisms which Paul might talk a little bit more about too. So what you can see in this image is I think probably one of the clearer images that shows the links between changes in our climate up the top there. So, for example, rising temperatures, rising sea levels, increasing extreme events. Um, and then you see the, the examples of health outcomes down the bottom there. So these range from injuries as a result of extreme weather events such as a flood or a cyclone through to issues on water and food security all the way through to social factors as well. So what we would we'd probably put issues around like migration into that category. So there's some of the examples of health outcomes that occur through exposure pathways such as extreme weather events, heat stress, air quality, and so on. But what I want to also highlight for you is this box in the middle. And there what we would talk about being the determining factors. So the degree to which the climate change impacts up the top will actually have an effect on communities and individuals' health and wellbeing. And I think that's that points to the equity, that points to the social determinants of health, that points to things like um, how, what is the current burden of disease, what is the current health and nutritional status, what are the levels of poverty in a particular community or country that we're working with, what is the physical exposure that a community might have to a potential extreme weather event. 
So I think it's really important we take a very close look at those determining factors when we start to unpack, well, how is climate change going to have an impact on our health? It's not just directly through these extreme weather events straight onto our health. It's through these mediating factors, such as governance, such as health um, issues, such as access to health systems and healthcare systems as well. This is one, I think this statement best summarises the finding from the second, um, from working group two from the R6, that the scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human wellbeing and the health of the planet. And any further delay in concerted global action will miss the brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. So I just wanted to put that up there. Um, and they're the sorts of statements that all countries who are signatories to the UNFCCC have um, agreed to. So that's a really important headline statement that came out of the IPCC last year. So on to the IPCC and some of the highlights from the Human Health and Wellbeing chapter. One of the first one was with very high confidence, that's that VHC there, we know that climate-related illnesses, premature deaths, malnutrition and threats to mental health and wellbeing are increasing. The evidence is stronger. There's more evidence and we know that the impacts are increasing. We also know that with proactive, timely and effective adaptation, many risks for human health and wellbeing could be reduced and some potentially avoided. So there's a lot we can do. And that's an important um, headline statement for the IPCC to say that. However, we need key transformations to facilitate what we're calling climate resilient development pathways for health and wellbeing. So climate resilient development is a newer concept that really emerged in the last four or five years or so. And it's an attempt to link adaptation and mitigation and sustainable development all together. So to try and remove this artificial um, you know, binary nature of adaptation and mitigation. Bringing those two together, how can we support policymakers to think of them at the same time? Because often there are, there are overlaps. I mean, if you think of green space as an example, we know that green space acts as a carbon sink and it also um, reduces the ambient temperature as well, so reduces urban heat island effect, for example. So there are ways that adaptation and mitigation can be bundled together and with a view to achieving the Sustainable Development Goals in 2030. So bringing all those three together in this concept known as climate resilient development. But we need key transformations. What does that mean for the health sector? We do know that transformational changes will be more effective if they're responsive to regional, local and Indigenous knowledge and consider the many dimensions of vulnerability, including those that are gender and age specific. So this is another um, figure from the synthesis report that was released just a few months ago. So the synthesis report packages up working group one, which is the physical science uh, of climate change, working group two, as, as I said, adaptation, vulnerability and impacts, and working group three, which is on mitigation. And so it was really good to see that health and wellbeing had quite a prominent role in the synthesis report. Previously, it hasn't really achieve the, the prominence that it should have, but here you can see it um, as being clearly um, identified as um, all those four health and wellbeing issues, infectious diseases, heat, malnutrition and harm from wildfire, mental health and displacement 
all being adverse impacts from climate change and they will continue to intensify. Another of the key headline statements from the RPCC that relates to our region absolutely is that health impacts are often interconnected, unevenly distributed across and within societies and will continue to be experienced inequitably. So at its core, climate change is an issue of justice. If you take away one point from my talk today, I'd love for you to take that one away, but it's an issue of equity and justice when we're dealing with climate change and human health impacts. And this is a, this is a headline statement that's repeated in the fourth assessment report, in the fifth assessment report. It will continue to be repeated. So let's try and make a difference. When we do our next report, we can say that we've made a difference in the work that we're doing. We also, oops, in the report um, noted, we were able to assess the literature to quantify that 3.3 to 3.6 billion people live in hotspots of high vulnerability to climate change. And so these are across large parts of Africa, but as well as South Asia, Central and South America, and small islands, so absolutely in our region. And there are overlapping challenges in these areas as well. So in these global hotspots, these overlapping challenges include limited access to water, sanitation and health services. I'm sure you all know this, given your roles in the health teams, but it's a really important reminder that we're dealing with so many different challenges. Um, so many communities and individuals have climate sensitive livelihoods. So it might be that a crop is entirely lost due to a flood or due to a drought. And if it's a single cropping system, then that entire livelihood for a community is potentially lost. High levels of poverty, weak leadership, lack of funding and accountability and trust in government. All of these issues have, have health impacts. I am piling on the sort of very negative, um, <laughs> you know, notes here, but it is important, I think, especially for the AR6, we were able to assess literature that started to understand the impacts and risks of compounding and cascading um, challenges on our human health. And so when multiple extreme events happen at the same time, they compound the overall risk and are more difficult to manage. And you can see here in this example, we've got increasing heat and drought. So we can see that an example might be that there'll be an increase in heat stress amongst farm workers, then this can result in reduced productivity, therefore reduced crop yield. It's not this linear, obviously, but it's a simple example to show that, the, that there are these cascading effects arising from multiple hazards happening at the same time. Increase, increase in food prices, meaning a reduction in household income. And then what are the local effects? It might mean that you can no longer send your child to school, or it might mean that you can no longer pay for that medication, or you can no longer attend that health service. And also potentially global effects, effects on trade. We know that the projections are that it will increase in its um, intensity and severity, intensity and frequency, sorry. Also, water scarcity um, at, at approximately two degrees. Regions relying on snowmelt could experience 20% decline in water availability for agriculture after 2050. I want to note that the IPCC is quite a conservative body, so um, these figures are generally an underestimate. But if we think about the impact of that on agriculture flowing from um, the north of Asia through, to, through Asia, through into the Pacific, the impacts on agriculture, food production, um, are really substantial from a 20% decline in water availability. 
So water and food security are vital um, issues that we're going to see um, keep increasing in terms of the, the risks that we'll, we'll um, be experiencing as a population. I've already talked about food security, I think. But the final um, major, or one of the major future global climate risks is flood risk. Uh, and, and about a billion people in low-lying cities by the sea and on small islands will be at risk from sea level rise in the mid-century. And we know that's already a current threat in many parts of the region where we are. So I'll stop for a second and I'd love to um, just ask two questions to get an idea of um, different perspectives in the room. So the first question is, how much public adaptation funding is explicitly directed to health projects? And I might run, out, run through the numbers and ask you to put your hand up. So 2%, anyone? 8%? Yeah. 8%? 22%? 34%? Wow, that's incredible. You, none of you are optimists at all. Uh, yeah, the answer is 2%. Um, so well done to eight percent. Keep that as a KPI. Um, but yeah, two, it's actually less than two percent. So it's an absolute major challenge that we have as a health sector. So yes, it's dire. It's really dire. You know, we often get shafted because we're not a, a, a hard infrastructure um, issue. We're not water. We're not agriculture. We can't build much stuff. So um, investing in health is a long-term strategy. But we can show some quick wins. The second question is, of the country survey, so there were 91 for the Lancet's Climate Change Countdown in 2021, how many had a national adaptation plan for health? So hands up, 35, 47, 63, 72. My, my tricky numbers didn't even influence people to go for the far end. But anyway, it was 47. So I think most of you actually said 47, which is a bit over half, which is good, but without a national adaptation plan for health, health will not get on the policy agenda. So the national adaptation plans as a whole that governments develop, they generally have sectoral contributions from health and agriculture and water and women's and, and urban and so on. But health's been quite late. To, be, to develop its own um, health national adaptation plan. That's a lot of the work that I do in different countries is to support the health ministries to write their national adaptation plans. So we've still got a fair way to go there as well. So <clears throat> moving to climate change impacts in small island developing states, what you can see here is that there are a lot of issues that are particular to small island developing states when it comes to climate change impact. So I suppose the one we're most familiar with really is sea level rise. That's a slow um, onset, what we call a slow onset hazard really. And so it's absolutely an issue, but there are so many others as well. So um, the impacts and risks are particularly pronounced in small island developing states. Uh, we know that they're, they're often geographic geographically dispersed, um, really difficult to access many, many populations. And this is a, this is a regional breakdown on health and wellbeing impacts. So I showed you the broad breakdown that's in the synthesis report, but this is a regional breakdown impacts on health and wellbeing. So you can see I've just circled small islands there and we can see 
that there's, the, the evidence is increasing, but the darker the circle, the, the stronger the evidence. So we still don't have sufficient evidence um, to really talk with very high confidence about adverse impacts on health and wellbeing. We can say that the evidence is all adverse um, in small islands, so adverse impacts on infectious diseases, on heat and malnutrition, on mental health and on displacement. But you can see by the lightness of those circles is that we still need to generate more of that knowledge and that evidence. And that's a bigger discussion because I think a lot of that knowledge is actually available and it's the way we package it up. And the RPCC is incredibly biased towards peer-reviewed publications. So what can we do with our colleagues in the places that we work to support their, um, to support the work that they're doing so that it is published in peer-reviewed publications? And so that's a discussion I'm having at the university with some colleagues in the region at the moment because the IPCC process is, in, as I said, incredibly weighted towards countries that can produce that type of research. What I'll now do is briefly touch on um, the example of Fiji. Um, so there are, and this really, um, this, this um, draws on some work that the WHO um, conducted a couple of years ago. And so it's been really good, the WHO, they've been developing country profiles for each country, um, or many countries across our region in particular. And this is one that they developed for Fiji. Um, so, you know, while there are common trends across across the Pacific, understanding, as I said, the different country context is necessary for us to be able to tailor responses. And so this work by the WHO um, showed a number of high priority climate sensitive health risks in Fiji. Wow. Did you all see that? Was it just that screen? Okay. Um, that ribbon? Yes. Okay. You won't hallucinate. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but what you can see is that, that um, there are many effects of climate change that have been assessed as, as really important for Fiji, Fiji to start considering and to develop its adaptation um, plan. So these range from direct effects, so from extreme weather events, so the cyclones, the flooding that we know occur, um, but also indirect effects, so again, food and water security, vector-borne diseases, and also what we call diffuse effects. But anyway, um, the main note, I suppose, is that we're starting to learn a lot more, as I flagged earlier, around mental health impacts. And from my own discussions with colleagues in the region, I think particularly the voices of youth and their feeling of, is my, is my community going to stay the same as an adult? How my, the, the physical environment around me is changing year by year. How, you know, I think it's this, um, the mental health impacts of how we see the future are really playing on the minds of particularly young people that I've spoken to in the region. Um, NCDs, absolutely vital. We know the threat of NCDs currently and projected in the region, particularly in the Pacific. Um, really complex issues there related to um, agricultural productivity, again, isolation of, 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 of particular islands in, in certain parts of the Pacific, um, reliance on processed foods and packaged foods, impacts on NCDs um, through um, the, in a storm, for example, losing an entire crop. You know, how, does that, how does that then 
um, flow on to agricultural productivity and what communities and how communities can, can sustain themselves. So that's a bit of a snapshot from Fiji. So how is the health sector armed to be able to deal with these continuing threats? So one way we are becoming more prepared is shifting to this systems view. And, and this image is the WHO's operational framework for building climate resilient health systems. I think it's, this is the main tool that countries are starting to use as they develop their comprehensive uh, climate um, action plans. And there is some support to, to implement that um, through the WHO, but as we know, it's not the most well-funded organisation in the world. Um, but it's really good to see that there, there is that systems approach being taken now, or being, being advocated for anyway. But what I really want to draw your attention to is those five health emergency responses, as they're called here. You can see that there are, you know, the second one is epidemic surveillance, early warning and response. Um, there's a one here, special services for outreach and a mobile team. So these sorts of um, health emergency responses, they're basic strengthening of the health system. So, yeah, it's really, really vital that we do look at climate change as a health system strengthening issue and we, and we include um, climate change lens when we're developing our health systems. And I've been given a wrap-up, so I will just show you this last slide. And I like this one from the synthesis report. It's the only figure, I think, in an IPCC report that includes humans. So it's really good to see that we are in the image. But more seriously, it does show the, that the extent to which current and future generations will experience a hotter and different world depends on choices now and in the near term. So it's up to us. The choices we make, the work that we do, will determine whether we're going towards a very high future emission scenario or whether we do reach a very low future emission scenario. So with that, I'll leave you there. Thank you. You've been listening to Professor Catherine Bowen from the University of Melbourne. This episode was the second of two insights from our latest seminar on climate change, health and international development. You can catch up with the next episode featuring Dr Paul Mitchell, Principal Climate Change Advisor of Save the Children, which will be on our feed in a fortnight's time. Thanks again for listening to Contain This, produced by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security at Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Contain This is produced by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. You can follow us on Twitter at CentreHealthSec.